you love your work? Do you think it's possible? Well, you're about to find out. It's time for 48 Days to the Work You Love with Dan Miller on the 48 Days Online Radio Show. Whether you need a professional tune-up or a work overhaul, this is the program for you. Now, here's your host, Dan Miller. Well, I trust you are taking care of business in a way that's productive and profitable for you. You know, as we head into the last, now like two months of the year already, it's also a great time to be planning out what you want next year to look like, or you want to design the year. Not just wait and see what happens, decide now what 2014 will be for you, and then do those things that bring that into view. Well, we've got some interesting questions as always today. I'm going to title our theme today. What are you aiming for? We're going to talk about a whole lot of things about how we choose what we aim for. And I'll give you a quotation from Napoleon Hill here in a minute. But here's some of the questions we'll be looking at. Is it really possible to have desirable difficulties in our lives? Now, that's a theme I've been God, I've just been, it's been on my mind a lot as I work with people, desirable difficulties. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Dan, should I move my family to a new city just for a job? Here's one we're going to have to park on a little bit. How can I change my mindset about money? That's something that comes up again and again and again. How do we handle this idea about having a healthy perspective of money? Should we avoid it at all costs to be safe? Are there dangers in having too little or too much? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit. Not going to do an exhaustive study, trust me, but I'll give you some points to ponder, perhaps. Dan, how do I keep from envying friends who have done better than I have? That's an interesting question. God, remember when you, when you go to your 20-year high school reunion? And there's some turkey that drives up in a Maserati. You think, ah, crap. Man, I got to park my Ford Taurus around back. Well, how how do you deal with that? How do you keep them envying friends who have seemingly done better than you? Well, those are deep, deep questions for today, it seems. But we'll, we'll address them, give you some things to think about. Here's our quotation. Remember I said we're going to title this, What Are You Aiming For?, Quotation comes from Napoleon Hill, who said, No more effort is required to aim high in life to demand abundance and prosperity than is required to accept misery and poverty. Hmm. So if they both both require the same effort, which are you going to choose? Abundance and prosperity or misery and poverty? Now, let me talk a little bit about this thing about desirable difficulties. That's a term that I just recently ran across in Malcolm Gladwell's new book, David and Goliath, which is a phenomenal book. Everything he writes is. He does a lot of research, wrote other books like The Tipping Point, Outliers. His new one is just the same kind of quality, David and Goliath. Desirable difficulties. I mean, does that seem like an oxymoron? I mean, words that don't even belong together. You know, we... There's a lot of things that we hear, terms that really are oxymorons, like organized mess, alone in a crowd, jumbo shrimp. You know, that's an oxymoron. How can it be jumbo and be shrimp? 
hot ice, cruel kindness, plastic glasses, pretty ugly, just war, real phony. Anyway, you get the idea. You could go on. I, I hear things like honest politician, oxymoron, two words that don't go together. What about desirable difficulties? Now, that actually is a term. I did a little research. There's a term to psychologists who studied this. And they said that you know, sometimes we ought to welcome difficulty in learning as an example. If we introduce a learning challenge, people improve their long-term memory of that. But, but here's just kind of off the top examples of desirable difficulties. What do you do with situations like this? Robin Williams, you know Robin Williams, the actor, comedian. He sees words upside down and backwards. Now, what happens when you're a little kid and you're in a classroom and you can't read? You know, the teacher often asks students to stand up and read and you stumble through and you can't get the words out or you mispronounce. You know, when other kids in school think you're an idiot, you know what kids often do? They try to do funny things to get some kind of self-confidence or social esteem. What do you think Robin Williams did? Well, he's leveraged that difficulty pretty well, it appears. Chris Gardner, remember the movie, The Pursuit of Happiness? In that movie, Chris, and it's based on a real story, but Chris's wife left him. He lost his house, his bank account, his credit cards. He was living on the streets with his son. But those very things prompted him to give himself another chance to get on top. And he ended up as a very super successful stockbroker. As a child, Harrison Ford was targeted by bullies in his school. So as a poor student, he signed up for drama class, just hoping he could get an easy, easy A by going to drama class. And he found that he really enjoyed it and opened a whole new world of opportunities for him. Well, Malcolm Gladwell in this new book, David and Goliath, I mean, he talks about how we've been misled in how we view disadvantages. I mean, conventional wisdom would always tell us that a difficulty is something to be avoided. You know, that any kind of a setback is going to leave us worse off. But you know, we, we know, even you hear me talk about failure on here. I mean, failure is a necessary part of the path to success. You have to go through it. You can't avoid it and get to any kind of success. It just doesn't happen. It, now, the reason for the title of the book, David and Goliath, I mean, he talks about that. Obviously, David had some disadvantages. Goodness, Goliath was a giant, probably about seven feet tall. He had military experience. He had all the latest military equipment. I mean, he knew that he could whip anybody that he got close to in hand to hand combat. David was a little scrawny shepherd kid, didn't have any military experience at all, no military equipment, refused even what Saul offered him. But he had a what the very things that were his disadvantages, being small and agile, turned out to be his greatest asset, his advantage. You know, a few weeks ago I talked about dyslexia and how often that becomes an asset for people rather than a disadvantage. So many people, you know, hang their heads and they have a label put on them and probably somebody that wants to give them medication. Well, some people have chosen not to do that. 
I mean, there are people with dyslexia who grew up to be the Richard Branson's and Thomas Edison's of the world. David Nealman, who is CEO of JetBlue, has talked a lot publicly about his ADHD and dyslexia, and he's chosen not to take medication. He's learned instead, he said, how to use his unique brain wiring to his advantage now that he understands it better. When we, when we talk about disadvantages, and yeah, I've had plenty of time to, to think through some of these things. I grew up with some things that would appear to be disadvantages. I mean, we were very poor. We didn't have running water in the house until I was in the eighth grade. We didn't have any radio or TV. I wasn't allowed to go to movies, dances, or sporting events. Most Christmases, I got a new pair of blue jeans as my one gift. My parents contributed not one red nickel to my college education. So were those things advantages or were they desirable difficulties? As I look back, I mean, what did not having any radio or TV lead me to? It led me to my love of books, which has served me very well over the years and continues to do so. I consider that to be one of the greatest sources of everything that I know and have been able to do is reading great books. I mean, the kind of things my parents not contributing to my college education, you know what? I was paying for it as I went. This was back before student loans were so popular. I don't know. I'm sure they were available, but hey, I was a farm kid. I didn't see that as an option for me. I was going to pay for it if I was going to have it. So I did. So how do you think I valued my college education? I see kids coming out now where their parents have paid 120000 bucks for their college education, and all they did was party. They, they learned nothing, have no marketable skills. Wow. So was that a disadvantage or an advantage for me? Well, it's helped me kind of reframe a whole lot of things. I mean, the, the story of people overcoming difficulties is certainly endless. I mean, we see people like Aaron Ralston, he, he's the kid who survived a climbing accident a few years ago, ended up amputating his own right arm. Well, he now has a best-selling book, a movie. He's in high demand as a motivational speaker. You've heard about Bethany Hamilton. She survived a shark t- attack but had her left arm bitten off. Well, she now has two books out. She's been featured in the movie Soul Surfer. She's been a guest on Good Morning America, The Tonight Show, The Oprah Winfrey Show. I know that we would never wish this kind of difficulty on ourselves or others. But why is it that some kind of a challenge seems to springboard a person past those who are blessed with just having a normal, difficulty-free life? You know, it's hard for me to frame some of this. Even as I talk about it, I'm conflicted about it. I mean, how in the world do we make this? Would I want, even coming through what I came through as a child, would I want my child to go through that? No. I want my children to have lives that are much more free of difficulty than what I had. Would Robin Williams, as a dad, want his child to have dyslexia? No. They'd do everything possible to avoid that. So it's almost counterintuitive. You know, we see the stories about how difficulties helped fuel somebody's success, but we don't want that for ourselves or others. I mean, I don't want my children to experience difficulty. I, I want to protect my wife from suffering in any way possible. 
In my coaching, I help people build lives of success or prosperity. So, I mean, how, how are you? Hand- I think in some ways, I think the only way we can really get a perspective on this is in retrospect, in looking back at what's already happened. I had a, one, a young guy not too long ago. I think he was like 27 years old. He said, hey, I hear you guys like you and Dave Ramsey and others talk about how you crashed and burned. You know, it seems that's a necessary part and you say it is. Well, things are going pretty well for me. He described that, you know, things are going really well. Great wife, great marriage, great kids, great job, great income, great house, great cars. He said, you know, should I set something else up to create a difficulty for myself? In essence, should he sabotage his success in some way? And I laughed. I said, my goodness, no. Believe me, challenges will find you. You will not continue challenge free. But in, a, in his scenario, he thought, should I create some kind of a difficulty so I get it behind me and can go back to the success that I'm enjoying now? Well, it is, it's a tough issue to look at. But how are you handling those difficulties in your life? Have they been desirable difficulties that led to advantages? Or when you're going through a challenge, do you, you know, look for any way that you can to get out of the challenge? See that as a waiting pattern until things get better in your life? You know, wishing you had a life with no stress or hardship? I mean, I know we gravitate toward that. We want a life of ease and pleasure and productivity and prosperity. I mean, there are a few people who would say they choose poverty. What did Napoleon Hill say? They choose misery and poverty? Geez, there's not many people I know who are going to choose that. Well, just thinking points. I think much of what I'm going to share today are points to ponder without clear, definitive answers. But what have you done with those desirable difficulties that have shown up in your own life? Have you just hung your head in misery and poverty and waited for it to pass? Or have you found the value, that surge of power, the new insights, the profound desire that seem to often come right in the middle of difficulty? I mean, I know in looking back, the, some of the biggest challenging times in my life were where I got the, the most insight into how to do things better, how to have more success, how to recover more quickly, even physically. Golly, it's when I'm struggling that it really gets my attention and I figured some things out and then leapfrog ahead physically in how I feel, what I'm able to do. And I'm sure a lot of you have experienced the same. Well, points to ponder. Let's go on. Desirable difficulties. Well, Andy from Alabama says, Dan, I'm a media director for my church. We have great equipment and produce broadcast quality content. I currently produce a television broadcast of our sermons for our local viewing area. I was wondering if there is an income generating opportunity for the church with this ever increasing content. The pastor is a full-time physician and owns his own clinic as well as travels across the country frequently. So his involvement in any such opportunity would be next to none. We currently have a church website where the sermons are archived for later viewing. I know you talk about building a presence and platform to generate income online, but since it is not my content, I'm wondering if there's an opportunity here. Thanks. Andy, I suspect your opportunity is, is in your competence in creating the broadcast quality video content. 
that's very transferable, that skill. But to take the content that you have now, have access to now, turn that into income generation, eh, that's going to be pretty tough. Now, if your pastor has a name like um, Rick Warren or Andy Stanley or um, Joel Osteen, I mean, certainly there are some people who are selling a lot of their products, but those are pretty rare in that arena where you've got sermon content. It doesn't command very high fees. There's a whole lot of other content that's easier to sell and create an economic model than trying to sell sermons. If the pastor has a really large following, there's going to be a small segment of people who will buy those products. But I know people, churches where the pastor has you know, 5,000 members, and still it would be impossible to create any significant income from just repurposing or selling his products to that audience. I think you probably need to just look at the, the expertise that you have and look at other ways to help people create content. I mean, if, I, I've got a young team that worked with me on launching our new product, The Ultimate Advantage, how to create your own mastermind group. Well, we expect big dollars from that. I mean, that's going to position, be positioned as an online course, $48.00. I mean, if we sell 10,000 of those, which is not really big numbers, and we certainly can do that, I mean, that's almost half a million dollars. I mean, those are the kind of things. But somebody's not going to pay $48 to listen to last week's sermon. And it has to be something that's going to change their economic future as well. You know, this is a dicey area because I don't want to get into implying that if your pastor just teaches people how to make money, then you can sell his product. But it's just, it's not a great platform for having a big income producing model when you are a pastor. Just that's not the format that normally leads to great business success. Thanks for your question. I'm I'm not sure that I gave you a lot of clarity, but I appreciate your question. Travis from Kansas says, Dan, thanks for taking the time to read my email. In short, I've discovered people like you, Dave Ramsey, Michael Hyatt, John Acuff, I've started blogging a month ago and I'm working through the 48 days process. I've been with a large retailer for 17 years and I don't know if I just don't like retail or if I don't like my company. This past week I've been offered an interview with Silver Dollar City Theme Park in retail if offered and I accept this would mean a big move for my family. I'm fairly confident I would be making the same amount of money. Should I consider this just based on the fact that we really like the Branson area, or should I just wait and continue to develop my passion? Well, Travis, I'm not sure what your passion is. You not really have not really clarified what that is. I mean, if your passion is retail, but just in an exciting kind of uh, environment, then certainly being with a theme park may be a great fit for you. Now, let me unpack your question in a couple ways. One is, would I recommend that you move your family just based on a job? Well, not because of the job alone. I mean, there have to be other things that are considered. Does the family want to go? Do you have a lot of roots and connections where you are? Are you attracted to the area that you would be going to? I mean, make it as a life decision, not just as a career decision. But in fact, you do like the Branson area and you think, wow, that'd be cool to live there and raise the kids there. 
then having a job there obviously is an advantage and there'd be no, no problem in doing that at all. Part of the question here is you really need more clarity in what your passion is. I mean, if you know that already, and this would just be a lateral move, then maybe it's time to focus on what your passion is and develop that directly instead of just prolonging the process. Again, if it, if this, you know, fits other kind of life issues for you, hey, enjoy the process, move. I mean, I've always enjoyed the process of moving. It's funny, we're kind of locked in where we are at this point. I've been here longer than we've ever been anywhere in our lives. Been at our current house 13 years now. That's much longer than we've ever stayed in one place. I like change. Of course, I also like to flip real estate and cars and other things, commodities. But at this point, many of you have been here to our property just outside of Franklin, Tennessee, and you know that we have an adjoining piece of property to where our house is. And on that adjoining piece of property is the barn that we call the sanctuary where we do our live events. And we have guest quarters and I do my business like recording this podcast. So because of that, it makes it pretty challenging to change. I mean, it would mean major change, not just in where we sleep at night, but in how I do business. So uh, sometimes I kind of begrudge that fact. I love where we are. My wife loves where we are. We don't have any plans to move, but I, I welcome the idea of, gee, am I missing something just because I'm not looking for another change? Well, let me move on. Jason from Spokane says, what advice do you have for leaving a job that provides good health insurance to go out on your own in this day and age that alone keeps many people in jobs they don't love. This especially is scary for a young family. Do you know any ways to be covered at a reasonable rate? Yes, I do. Jason, you know, this, I mean, with all the volatility right now in healthcare, I mean, there's a whole lot of change that's going on, but assuming that you are a reasonable wage earner and that you are in reasonable health, you have a lot of great options, health plans that you can choose. When you talk about going out on your own, the first thing I would recommend is check out an HSA, health savings account. That's a unique option that the government has made available for entrepreneurs, and it is killer. You get to put money aside tax-free, so it comes right off the top. Before you pay taxes on it, it goes into a special account. Then when you have medical expenses, you use out of that account until you reach a particular deductible. Now, in an HSA, typically you have a pretty high deductible. I mean, we have $7,000 deductible in ours. So what that means is we never use the insurance. Anything that we do, we pay out of pocket. But it means then that people are careful about expenses. They don't run to the doctor for every little thing or get a prescription. You know, people... Companies know that if with an HSA, you're going to take care of your health and maintain your health, but it's a great option for people who are entrepreneurs who are in good health. I'll put a link in the podcast notes today. I have a lengthy document on the 48 days site about insurance for the self-employed. I'll put that link in there. If you go, just go to 48 days, just scroll down and do a search insurance for the self-employed. It'll take you right to that document. There are a lot of options out there. There are sharing plans where you share with other families. A lot of times those are faith-based. You share with other families on initial expenses. They have a really high deductible where everybody pitches in and shares out of the premiums that you pay if you should need that. There are those. Insurance companies are looking for, I mean, traditional companies like Blue Cross Blue Shield are looking for people who work on their own because they know we're better risk. 
we have way fewer health claims than people who have lots of coverage. And that brings up, of course, the whole issue about health care as it's being proposed today when people have health care coverage for them taken care of by somebody else, especially they tend to overuse health care. I mean, it's a vicious cycle and I don't have any easy answers, but it is not difficult to get insurance on your own. There are a lot of companies looking aggressively for your business. If you are an entrepreneur, Well, this comes from Eric from Maryland, who says, Dan, help. Now, this is that one that I'm going to need to kind of unpack for a little bit. You know what? Let me do one other question, and then I'm going to just spend whatever time we've got left on this one. Let me come back to that. So Troy from Ames, Iowa says, I worked for the largest entertainment company in the world, helped them in their early online ventures after layoffs and went back to my hometown in the Midwest. Several of my coworkers went on to be CEOs of recognizable companies, including LinkedIn. I don't consider it envy, but I keep wondering what I did wrong to not achieve the same type of success. Ten years later, I'm still trying to find my thing and have worked for several companies. Now I am, and I know that, know that I'm meant for more. How do I get that self-confidence back once and for all and make a difference in the world? Well, Troy, when we look at people who went on to be CEOs of companies, I mean, I know people who are CEOs of companies, you know, friends who are in those kind of positions. I don't envy them. I, I, if anything, I pity them. No, I wouldn't go that far, but I don't want to be them because that role doesn't fit me at all. To be confronted when you walk in in the morning, you got 300 employees and you got countless committee meetings to go to. I mean, I don't want that. It doesn't. So be careful what you're wishing for. Sometimes the way we define success is not really an appropriate definition. If you're looking at success as, wow, they made more money or they do drive a Maserati and instead of what you drive, well, what you drive may be based on some other life decisions that you've made. You may make as much money as they make, but you've chosen to give it away. I mean, I know people who are doing a reverse tithe, people who live on 10% of their income and give 90% away. I mean, there's some, there are a lot of ways to approach what you see as success. The real issue here is, do you feel like you're underachieving, like you're underaccomplishing what you're capable of doing? Well, if that's true, then by all means, address that. Yeah, don't settle for mediocre if you feel like you are capable of more. But that more may not look like the success of some of your coworkers and what they've gone on to. The more for you may mean more time flexibility. It may mean more time to spend with your wife and kids or to take care of your aging parents or to do volunteer work in another part of the country or another part of the world where you spend three months a year doing that. So define what success means for yourself. Then certainly be aggressive about achieving that. But don't think that your success ought to look like what somebody else is doing. Okay, let me go into this question. Comes from Eric, who says, Dan, help. I have a poor man's mindset and I can't seem to shake it. I'm stuck trying to understand Proverbs 37 to 9. 
I've taken your advice and I've tried reading Rabbi Daniel Lappin's book, Thou Shall Prosper. Even though I usually read 40 plus books a year, I'm struggling to get through his book. How can I change my mindset and start making more money? All right, now this is, I'm going to address this. I mean, if, if you are faith-based or a Christian, I mean, wonderful. You'll plug right in. If you're not, the principles are the same. The principles are, how do we approach this love-hate relationship that we often have with money? The verses that Eric references in Proverbs 37 to 9 are these. This is what's said there. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Now, I hear lots of people reference that one little section in Proverbs written by Agur. Not sure exactly who he is, but anyway, he's pretty much a pessimist. Now, there's the, the rest of the chapter is much the same. What it really talks about here, now again, the verses that, are in, that really are the hotspots. Two things I ask of you, Lord, before, do not refuse me before I die. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Is that a desirable place for all of us where we're afraid of having too much and we're afraid of having too little? So just keep me in mediocrity. I'll tell you what, that's not where I want to stay. Not at all. Now, if, if I were to, to frame this prayer, and I'm very familiar with this. This is a hot spot, has been for a long time. But I would say this is the wise prayer of a weak man. If you look at the rest of the chapter, you'll see this is a guy, this is an author who struggled with everything. I mean, he, he had all kinds of issues with self-confidence, and challenges with other people and so on and so forth. He had a pretty diminished, a pretty low view of himself. I mean, he starts off this chapter by saying, I'm the most ignorant of men. I do not have a man's understanding. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. He starts off by saying, man, I'm really stupid. I'm really an idiot. So the whole chapter is framed in that way. When we look at what he's asking for here, why would he say, give me neither poverty nor riches? If I have too much and disown you, that's a danger I don't want to go into. If I have too little and steal, I'm going to dishonor your name. What does that mean? That means this guy's really afraid of his own self-discipline. He's afraid of his own honor and integrity and character. I mean, is it reasonable to think what would happen to you if you had more money? Would you 
dishonor the Lord? Would you be dishonest with other people? Would you take advantage of other people? Would you belittle people who don't have as much as you? I mean, if those things would be true, if you really suspect that of yourself, then by all means, pray that God keeps you from ever having money. But what if you've been a faithful steward of the money you now have? What if when you have money, you share your resources You do things that make your family better, your community better, the world better. I mean, really, all kinds of opinions around this, I'm sure. But, you know, look at Bill Gates, one of the richest men the world has ever seen. Should we pray that he has less money? Does he pray that he has less money? Look at what he does with his money. I mean, what he's doing in health and education around the world. My goodness, I hope he makes a 10 billion more dollars this year so that he can funnel it into the kind of things that he's doing. All right, we go back to our writer in Proverbs who says, if I don't have enough money, then I'm afraid I'll steal. Wow. I've had times in my life where I didn't have any money at all. I mean, where the lights had been turned off. Was I ever tempted to steal? No, that's a totally different issue. Would I justify taking food from my neighbors because I was poor? No, I'd be figuring out a way to get out of poverty so that I could honorably go to the grocery store and get the food I needed or plant a garden in the backyard, do something. But this guy is saying, wow, he's afraid that if he's poor, he's going to steal. I mean, that's pretty self-revealing to pray in this way. I think we just have to look at it. What, what was the underlying personality, motivations of the guy who was writing this particular section in Proverbs? He was totally afraid that he didn't have the character to handle being poor or rich. We can ask the same questions. If we get the same answers as he did, then by all means, pray this prayer. God, don't give me too much and don't give me too little. Let me just be an average, normal, middle-class American and live out my days. That's all I want. Well, let's, let's stretch this a little bit. I can't just leave it there. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of the best-selling little book, The Prayer of Jabez. There again, somebody took just a short section out of the Old Testament What did Jabez say? Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my territory. Let your hand be with me and keep me from harm so that I will be free from pain. He's praying, golly, give me way more than I've ever had. And a whole lot of people grabbed onto that book, that particular part, said, wow, I want more. I want to expand my territories. I want to stretch my boundaries. I want to have more than I ever dreamed about. So there's that. But when it really comes down to it, what does it mean if we want more? Now, Eric referenced Rabbi Daniel Lappin's book, Thou Shall Prosper, which I think is the best source of information in this category. And you've heard me talk before about conversations with Rabbi Lappin. Does God want us to be rich? 
what he says is God wants us to be obsessively preoccupied with the needs of others. That's how we get rich? Wow, you mean we don't manipulate, con, steal, abuse, walk over people to get rich? No, we don't. Now, do we see people doing that? I'm sure you can have examples that come to mind as I talk about it. But that's not an admirable goal for anybody. That's not what we want. The idea of giving back is something that makes Rabbi Lappin cringe. He hates that concept, giving back. It implies that while you were making money, you were taking advantage of people. What if you started a business where you were giving back from day one, where it was a way of serving people? And in that way, it's perfectly fine to ask God for more money. I mean, if you want to frame it in a prayer, go ahead and include a request for prosperity. But what are you asking for? If you ask God for more money, now, if you're asking that you get a winning lottery ticket or that the government shows up and takes care of all your needs, I mean, that's a prayer that's not likely to be answered. But if you really are a person of faith and you pray asking for more prosperity, you know what you're really asking for? You're asking for an opportunity to better serve your fellow human beings. That's the only way you're going to be prosperous. I mean, and that, that's deep within the Jewish culture and certainly other faith-based cultures. That The conviction is that the only way to achieve wealth is to serve other people and to conduct yourself in an honorable and trustworthy fashion. We've got to get rid of this idea that rich people are cheating other people. If you believe that rich people have taken advantage of others and that they're somehow scamming people to get money, if you believe in the law of scarcity, that money, wealth, abundance is a fixed quantity so that if I take some, there's less for you, if you believe that, then yeah, just just pray for mediocrity. But if you believe that money and wealth is multiplied, is created over and over and again, if you believe in the law of abundance, that those things create themselves over and over and over again, I could give you lots of examples of how that works, then pray for your own abundance. It's perfectly honorable, pious, godly to ask for more because you're asking for more opportunity to serve people. And I've done that for years. Now, coming out of the theology that I did, I had to decide what I was going to believe on this. Again, I mean, we all have to do that. I mean, that's what we do. I mean, we, we like to think that there is absolute truth, and yes, there certainly is, but how we interpret it and perceive it for ourselves is pretty subjective. I mean, how do we have people that see the same verse in the Bible like this as an example and come up with 10 different opinions about what the, the truth is? Well, ultimately, we have to decide what does that mean for me? But I grew up in an environment where money was seen as being very dangerous, where it would have the potential to pull us away from God. Education was seen as that, where you go to school, you get too much, too much information in your head, too much knowledge, too much of what you think you understand that draws you away from God. Thus, they didn't encourage 
kids to go to school beyond the state-required minimum of 16. I had to fight that to go on to college. My parents didn't embrace. I talked earlier about they didn't support it financially because they didn't encourage it or support the idea in and of itself. But money was seen as something that we would be safer without. Godliness was very close to poverty. The poorer somebody was, the more likely they would be pious. And so if you believe that connection, then on a continuum, the more money you get, the more likely you are to be drawn away from your simple, basic faith and belief. Well, I don't believe that. I mean, I I see people who are prosperous beyond imagination, who have strong, deep, generous faith. You know, it's, it's really with people who are in poverty and misery that I see more of a focus on money and more greed, more of an unwillingness to serve other people at that end of the spectrum than I do with people who are extremely wealthy. Well, this is a tough issue. I, I don't claim to have all the answers at all, but I love the questions. I love the questions where People have the willingness to ask, what would this look like? What should this look like as it's played out in my life? I mean, I love these things that we can share together, ask each other the questions, try to figure out what does this really mean in my life? How am I going to address this in what I do? Well, you know what? I think instead of going on to another question, maybe I'm tapped out emotionally. We're going to wrap up with that one. You know, we started off talking about what are you aiming for? And we looked at that quotation from Napoleon Hill that no more effort is required to aim high in life to demand abundance and prosperity than is required to accept misery and poverty. I mean, we see that. Are the people who have aimed high in life that expect abundance and prosperity, are they more worn out at the end of the week than somebody who's making seven bucks an hour? No, not at all. Probably less. I mean, typically less. It's easier when you have some things working in your life financially than if you are concerned about the lights being turned off, which I mentioned I've been there in the past. Been a little while, but I've been there in the past. We want to move past that. Well, we talked about desirable difficulties in our lives. I'd be be interested in hearing your thoughts on that. Just shoot a note to askdan at 48days.com or or to allow other people to see it if you just go to the podcast notes. Go to 48days.com, click on the podcast, this episode. Leave your comments there. That way other people can see it and comment as well. We'll get a discussion going on. Is it possible to have desirable difficulties? in our lives. Incidentally, if you have a question, you can do it there as well. If you've got questions like we've been talking about here or other things related to your work and life, go to the podcast link in 48days.com or just shoot an email to askdan at 48days.com. I'd be happy to review that. Consider it for an upcoming program. We talked about the idea of moving your family to a new city just for a job. No, it should never be just about the job. It should be because it makes sense in terms of where you want your life to go. How do you keep from envying friends who've done better than I have? You know, that's really funny because, I mean, I know, I know with me what I've, the, the, 
feelings that I get when I go to a reunion. We went to a reunion of the little town where I grew up. I ended up going to a different school to graduate, went to a church-based school my parents sent me to to graduate from high school, but I grew up in this little tiny town that still does not have a traffic light and went back to that town for my, don't remember what reunion it was, but anyway, it was down the road a ways, one of those round numbers, went back for a reunion and discovered that in a class of about 30, only two people had left that town. 28 of the class members were still right there in that little town. Now that's okay, but it, it, it sure made me appreciate the wide variety of experiences that I've been privileged to have since then in traveling and in doing things, developing things. The other thing it impressed me with as well was that most of those people put in their 30 years of work, retired, and now they're doing nothing. And literally doing nothing. I mean, fishing, playing a little golf, tinkering in the yard, and that's it. And I'm at a point in my life where I'm planning out, you know, the next 10 years. I mean, I fully expect the next five years to have me do more, accomplish more than I've accomplished in the entirety of my life up to this point. I don't want that to sound arrogant, but it just has to do with how I'm wired. I'm ramping up, not tapering down to nothingness. I'm ramping up the opportunities that we have today. I mean, some of the things that we're able to do right now with online courses and with online membership sites, I mean, the leverage that we can get makes things that I was doing five years ago pale in comparison. I love those opportunities. Well, the idea, though, is to identify what does success mean for you? What does that look like for you? It's not to compare yourself to everybody else in your class. What does success look like for you? If you've achieved what success means for you, then fantastic. Hold your head high. Live out integrity, honor, and character the rest of your life. If you think there's still more to be done and you get that surge of a little envy or jealousy and you think, man, I could do that as well, then create a plan to do it. It's never too late. That's the neat thing about today's work environment. It's not just based on one's physical prowess. If I were laying railroad ties, then obviously my ability to do that well would start to wane when I was about 40 years old. Or if I'm an NFL player, even younger than that. I mean, that's a different kind of thing. But in the place that a lot of us are operating where we're dealing in intellectual capital, where the things that we have of value are between our own two ears rather than how big our biceps are, that opens up new opportunities. And it can for you as well, where you can continue to go into your increased in productivity even as you're 70, 80, 90 years old. I love stories like Peter Drucker, who at 91 years old, you know, was still having little groups of people come to his house to just kind of sit at his feet and listen to him talk because he was so wise about so many things. I mean, that's what I want to do. I want to still be doing workshops and seminars when I'm 91 and 98 and 101. You know, I'm not sure about that. I got I to think about that a little bit, but I keep telling Joanne I'm going to break the triple digits. So we'll see as that bears out. Well, I trust that you are doing things that are meaningful, purposeful in your life. That you're not settling for average. That you're not settling for mediocrity because you think God is forcing you into that. He's not. Choose what success means for you. If you want more, find out how you can serve more people. 
that'll open doors like you've never seen before. Thanks for being part of this amazing community where we are, in fact, finding or creating work and lives that are meaningful, purposeful, and profitable.